Is that good, Dale? Here we go. I notice we have a lot of visitors today. Thank y'all for being here. Just look out and even see people I don't recognize. So uh, if you stick around, I'll I'll find you and shake your hand uh, when we're when we're uh, concluding our service. And uh, if you could fill out, there's there's a card in the bulletin, or somehow just give me your your email address or your phone number so I can text you or whatever and tell you that we're glad that you're here and that you've joined us. Uh, our text this morning, uh, I've called it the glorious ministry of the Spirit. I, I, think, uh, I think I would probably change the title to, I don't even know, can you change the title? Can, or is, it just, is it set in stone? Why don't we call it the more glorious ministry of the Spirit? The more glorious. Just add more after thee and that'll, that'll be good. The text is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, that's 1 through 17, that should be 1 through 18, we'll, we'll finish it out. So we're going to take the whole chapter today, and normally uh, I don't do a whole chapter, but I think there's kind of a flow here that maybe we're, you know, whenever the Corinthians received this letter, they didn't just read like two or three verses at a time, they actually read the whole letter. And so it's okay to take big chunks of Scripture sometimes to kind of get the flow of the argument. So I've kind of I've got some points I want to make as we go through it, and, um, and then I'll make some application at the end. So I want to talk about the ministry of the Spirit, the way that the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious than the ministry of the letter of the law. That's what Paul is, is the argument that he's making here. And so we've got to remember a little bit where we are. Paul's going to begin this uh, sermon talking about letters of recommendation. Now, we're in a season in our house where we've got a senior in high school. And so we're filling out all these applications for college. We're filling out applications for scholarships. And a lot of the scholarships want a letter of recommendation from somebody that's not the parent or someone that's not a relative. They want, they want to know what the school counselor thinks. They want to know what the biology teacher thinks. And so we have to ask all of these teachers for letters of recommendation. Uh, whenever we uh, send someone uh, uh, that's, that's left, well, that used to, the practice actually used to be different. Now, whenever someone wants to join our church from another church, we actually write to their church where they're a member. If they want to join our church, if you are a member of another Baptist church and you want to join this one, you can join by letter. And what that means is Jan will send a letter to the church that you're coming from, and they will send us a letter of recommendation, basically, that says they're a member here in good standing. They've been baptized. They were actual members of our church. And so back in the old days, when people were moving from Tennessee to Texas or from eastern parts of the country to the western part of the country, and they were members of a church, they would go to their pastor or the church, a, a, a members meeting, and they would say, I'm, we're leaving, can y'all give us a letter? And they would carry with them a letter from their church that said that they were members of a church. That's how we get the practice of receiving people by letter. But if you go way back, we can even see in the Bible that that was a biblical practice of granting letters of recommendation. That wasn't just something Christians did. That's something that they did in the Roman world where you didn't necessarily have a really good postal service. If you needed to show someone your letter of recommendation, you just had to carry it with you. And there are some letters of recommendation that were written in the Roman world that we have today. 
So here's, let me read you a letter of recommendation. I just find this kind of interesting that we still have these things. This was written on papyri paper, and it says, to Julius Domitius, military tribune of the legion from Aurelius Archelius, his beneficiaries, that means he was a soldier exempt from menial duties. He says, greeting, I have already, this was a letter that he gave to uh, his friend Theon. He says, I've already before this recommended to you Theon, my friend, and now also ask you to have him before your eyes as you would myself. For he is a man such as to deserve to be loved by you, for he left his own people, his goods, and his business, and followed me, and through all things has kept me safe. I therefore pray that he may have the right to come and see you. He can tell you everything about our business. I have loved the man. I wish you, sir, great happiness and a long life with your family and good health. Have this letter before your eyes and let it make you think that I am speaking to you. Farewell. And so Theon would have carried this to Julius Domitius, and that would have been his letter of recommendation from Aurelius. And we have different examples of letters like this. Christians also would give each other letters of recommendation because Christians would often go from one city to another city in the Roman Empire on business or perhaps they were even doing mission work. And Christians, because they were becoming a persecuted group at different times, you really, really we think of, of the Roman Empire persecuting Christians, there wasn't constant persecution. That's how Paul could go in and, and, and plant churches. That's how uh, there was, they were generally you know, met with peace, even though the, the Romans considered them to be atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. What would happen is there would be a famine or there would be a great fire or there would be some kind of natural disaster. And when that happens, the people would say, well, why is this happening in our midst? And then they would realize oh, we've got these Christians here that don't worship the gods. Maybe that's why we suffered a famine. That's why our crop didn't come in or whatever it was, and they would start persecuting Christians. And so Christians, uh, they, they, were, they were maybe not persecuted, but they definitely started to become the outcast of society. Why? Because they weren't participating in all the things that the culture did. And so they became uh, outcast and relegated to the sidelines of of the society, and so when they would go to a new town, perhaps they wouldn't be allowed to come into the, the hotel, or they wouldn't be able to find lodging, well, they would carry letters of recommendation from their church and go to another church that was in that city, and they could enjoy the hospitality of the other Christians. Now, there also were, were letters carried because whenever one Christian would go from one city to another city, there were some people that, well, we should say this, there were some people that realized what Christians were doing and how they were showing hospitality to one another. And so they would forge letters, and then they would go and take advantage of the hospitality of the Christians. And there are actual historic instances of that happening, uh, where we have that written down, the history of it. So these are, 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 was a common practice. And what was happening in Corinth, if you remember, Paul planted the Corinthian church. So we've been studying the book of 2 Corinthians. We've been talking about how this letter uh, is a very occasional letter. Paul is having a tumultuous relationship with this church that he himself planted. So if you can imagine in your mind, you know, the way a pastor might speak to a church, 
it would probably be quite different than the way I would speak to you if I was actually the person that planted this church. And y'all were among the first believers who were at a church. But Paul has this tumultuous relationship with this church because false teachers have come in and have taught them different things, and they've said, don't listen to Paul. Even though Paul planted the church, they would say, don't listen to him. Listen to us. You guys need to be circumcised. You guys need to follow all of the law. Okay, don't listen to Paul. Uh, we know from, from reading uh, 1 Corinthians, the, the first chapter of it, we know that there were different factions in the church that followed different leaders. Some followed Peter, some followed Paul, some followed only Jesus Christ. They were a divided church. And so Paul was having a rough time dealing with them. And there were some that were in the church that said this. Even though, remember, I just want to make the point again, Paul was the founder of the church. And there were some in the church who were saying, where are Paul's letters? Where's Paul's letters of recommendation? Where's Paul's letters of recommendation from the churches uh, in, in Jerusalem? What about James? Does James endorse Paul's ministry? They were asking questions like this. And so Paul, in the third chapter, as he's writing this letter that we call 2 Corinthians, he turns the tables on them. And he says, you want a letter of recommendation? You are our letter of recommendation. Your very lives are the handwriting of God. Your very lives are a letter written by Christ, delivered by us. And so in this sermon today, as we look at these 18 verses quickly, Paul goes on to explain to them that they are his letter of recommendation and tells them how glorious it is to be used by the Spirit in verses 1 through 6, in the glorious ministry of the Spirit, verses 7 through 11, and the powerful and in the powerful ministry of the Spirit. So Paul's going to talk about being used by the Spirit in verses 1 through 6. You can write that in the side. He's going to talk about the glorious ministry of the Spirit in verses 7 through 11 and how that is superior to the law. And then he's going to talk about the powerful ministry of the Spirit in verses 12 through 18. So we'll catch the flow of his argument. This chapter in 2 Corinthians is considered to be one of the most difficult chapters to interpret by scholars. There's different opinions about what it means, so you're going to get mine today. And you can go home and you can read your own and study on your own. But this is, uh, as I've studied it, what I think makes the most sense just based on reading the text plainly. Okay, So look at uh, verse 1 there. Paul is talking about how he's not a peddler of the gospel. How he's been sincere with his other brothers and they've done their very best before Christ to serve the Corinthians. And so he's bragging at the end of chapter 2 or boasting a little bit at the end of chapter 2 as he defends his ministry because they are questioning it. And so he says in verse 1, oh boy, he, he realizes what he's writing and he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And as we read this, you have to read it with the sarcasm or it won't make any sense. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And then he says in verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show, look at verse 3, you show, you demonstrate by the way you live, you show you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Uh, you know, whenever we, when, when we, 
do mission work. Whenever we are ministering to someone, you have to remember, if someone comes to Christ because you lead them to Christ, you didn't save them. You, you didn't write their salvation. You're not the author of their salvation. You weren't the great persuader. Uh, that work, you just brought the message. And they responded to the message. And the work was done through the truth of the Word of God as you shared the gospel with them and then the Holy Spirit worked in their heart that they might believe. As Scott said, grants repentance and faith. These are gifts from God, not gifts from you. So the letter was being written by Christ. It was a letter written by the Spirit delivered by Paul. He's saying, I'm just the mailman. I'm delivering the message to you, of this, uh, and, and you are the letter, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. For some of us that were in the biblical counseling class last week, we remember as we looked at Ezekiel 36, that work that God does where he removes the heart of stone and he puts in the heart of flesh. And Paul's saying, this is what has happened to you. God has worked in your heart. And he's worked in our heart. And he's written on your, on your heart, not on tablets of stone like the law, but on the tablets of your heart that will move, move you and cause you to walk in the ways of the Lord. This is God's work. And here you're saying to me, where's your letter, Paul? He just says, look what God has done here. Remember when, when I came in and I greeted you and met you maybe at the synagogue or when I was out making my tents and you were there coming into the marketplace and we struck up a conversation about what, it, what the purpose of life is. You can think of all the ways Paul ministered in many and various different ways just as we do to people. And you can think of the apostles. They even had the signs at that time. They were able to do prophecy. They were able to uh, speak in tongues. They were able to work healings. And so there were the signs that accompanied Paul's ministry. And the people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, just look at what's happened, guys. Look at how your lives have changed. Look at the difference that the ministry of the Spirit has made in your life. And yes, I was just the mailman. I was just the one who delivered the letter. But look at what's happened. You don't need a letter from me. You are my letter. People can come and they can read your life. And they can see, and that will testify, uh, they will see my work. That will testify to what I've done in your midst as the apostle who planted this church and, and, and led you to Christ. He says in verse 4, such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Why are we confident in God? Why are we confident through Christ toward God? I'll tell you why. Because we can't be confident in our own flesh. A apart from God's work, there's, there's nothing that we can have confidence in. Look how Paul works that thought out in verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. It's not from us. If people come to the afterward, you know, people are so kind to say uh, complimentary things. Like, I loved that song, or that was a really great message. You did a good job. And I'll say, if anything was good, is God. I only say this because I heard a preacher say it one time, and I was like, I'm going to say that from now on. But he said, if, <laughs> if there's anything good, it's from God. If there's anything bad, it was me. You know, it was my flesh. So wh whatever is good is from God. And isn't that really what Paul's saying right here? We can't claim anything. The, the man who thinks he's something should take heed because what's he about to do? 
He's about to fall. We, don't, we are not sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. That means stop depending on yourself and put your faith in God. Stop trying to be sufficient in and of yourself. And you look at someone at your office, or you look at someone in your family, and you think, if I could just be more like them, I'd be more effective for the kingdom. And we all have someone we admire, and we think, I'm going to start trying to talk like them, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to be like them. We start to mimic them because we don't think that, you know, God made you. You know, God made one Chad Edgington. And yes, Chad Edgington has to realize he's not sufficient to claim anything. It's all God's work. But I can kind of glory in my own insufficiency and say, you made Chad Edgington, you only made one of them, and I'm going to be the best Chad I can be. And you've got to be the best Serenity you can be. Okay? And you've got to be the best Ronnie Cowart you can be. Because God only made one of us, right? And so he's got a plan and a purpose, knowing that you're weak, knowing that you're insufficient, to let you deliver those letters. You see? And so you, can, you don't have to keep trying to make yourself sufficient. You just have to say a prayer like this. Verse 5, Lord, I know I'm not sufficient. I know I can't claim anything is coming from me. But thank God that when you use me, it's your sufficiency and it's your power and it's your promises. Look at what verse 6 says God does. He makes us, God who made us, sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay, now we're moving into, this is why I think some people get frustrated with Paul, right? Because here he's talking about letters of recommendation, and I guess he likes the idea of kind of riffing on letters. And, you know, he's thinking of the letter of recommendation, and then his uh, thinking shifts to thinking about the letter of the law, thinking about what Moses delivered thinking about what Moses brought down on those tablets from the mountain. Paul says, uh, there's a new covenant and a new spirit, that's uh, uh, a, a new ministry of the spirit, and he's contrasting that with the law. Now, what is the difference between this new covenant and this new work of the spirit and the old covenant? You understand what I'm talking about when I mention that. What we would say Moses delivered, the law, what we find in the Old Testament, that's what Paul's referring to as the letter of the law. That's going to be the, 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 well, the first five books of the law, what Moses gave in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and how that worked out in the nation of Israel, saying that's the ministry under the Old Covenant. But now we have a new covenant. We have the, 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 the letter would be the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant, and the ministry of the Spirit is the, 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 what we would call the New Testament, the Gospel, the work of Jesus Christ. So he's kind of drawing a contrast there, and what's the difference? Well, the difference is that, and Paul's not saying that the Old Covenant wasn't glorious. He says it's glorious. Okay, God's glory was revealed in that Old Covenant. God gave his people a standard in that old covenant. God showed the people, here is how you're intended to live in the old covenant. And in the law, there was only one problem with it. You had the truth, but you didn't have the promises. 
You didn't have the promise that if you believed this, the Holy Spirit was going to come live inside of you and you were going to be able to live it out. That's what we enjoy as New Testament Christians. For them, it was more difficult to see. And so what Paul says in this uh, next section in verses 7 through 11 is that there is a more glorious ministry going on right now than there was in the Old Covenant. And his argument is basically the argument of Hebrews. If you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, what the writer of Hebrews argues is that Christ is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. Christ is better. And so Paul kind of gives us a mini argument, sort of like Hebrews here, and he says, if you have the old covenant, which is glorious, but it resulted in condemnation, how much more glorious is the new covenant that brings life? That's the argument that you'll see in verses 7 through 11. Let's read them. Now, if the ministry of death, and that's what Paul's calling the law. Paul's calling the law the ministry of death. Now, you say, well, that doesn't seem very nice. But remember, when the law was given, it shows the standard by which God is holding people accountable. And so, were people able to keep that standard? No. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do you know that you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Because you measure your life against the law, and you measure your life against the Ten Commandments. How many of those have you broken? Probably all ten. Especially if you think about the way Jesus talked about things like murder. What did Jesus say about murder? If you've even hated somebody, you've murdered them. How do you talk about adultery? If you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. Some of you all have watched Ray Comfort videos where he goes through and talks to people about the Ten Commandments, and they're like, I'm a good person. And then he reads them the Ten Commandments. He says, okay, if you're judged by that standard, what happens? They say, I go to hell because I've broken all those rules. So God gave us ten rules. You broke them all. Are you a righteous person? No, I'm not. Okay, there's the problem. The law shows us what the problem is, doesn't it? The law shows us the problem, and it all points to Jesus. It's all, Christ is all over the Old Testament. Like Dr. Criswell would say, you cut the Bible on any page and it bleeds Christ. It bleeds Christ. So it was all pointing toward Jesus. And the only way anyone's ever been saved is through faith in Christ. They believed the little bit that they had to believe, right? Genesis chapter 3. He'll strike your heel and he'll crush his head. There's gospel right there, isn't it? Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And all the world will be blessed through your offspring. There's the gospel, isn't it? We see it. We see it. We can read Isaiah chapter 55. We can read Psalm chapter 22. We can see Jesus all through there. All through the, uh, the, the Old Testament. Uh, whenever that sermon is preached, uh, one night, I this, thought, thought of this because I mentioned uh, W.A. Criswell. Uh, W. Criswell decided one night he was going to preach through the whole Bible. And he did it. And you can listen to it. It's a long sermon. But he, he was going to start it on a New Year's Eve. And I think he started preaching at 6 o'clock or something like that, or 5 o'clock. He just preached all the way through midnight. And he called it the scarlet cord. And he was saying, just like that scarlet cord hung out the window of Rahab's room, and it brought salvation to her house. He says that scarlet cord runs all through the Bible. We can see the sacrifice of Jesus. We can see it all through the Old Testament, pointing us to Christ. We can see it, but he, but he makes the argument here, Israel doesn't see it. They didn't see it. And so to them, it was a ministry of death because they couldn't see Christ. They couldn't put their faith and trust in what God was doing. 
So if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, was fading, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that has surpassed it, the gospel. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. See, he's just making an argument that now that we have Christ come, now that we have the fulfillment of the law, it's so much more glorious that it makes this seem like it has no glory at all. The old covenant. What's he talking about there with Moses' face? The Israelites in verse 7 could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory. It's referring to something that happened in Exodus chapter 34 and, and, and in the book of Exodus where Moses would come down off the mountain after he's met with God and they'd have to put a veil over his face because his face was shining. Because when he'd go up there, he'd take the veil off and he would meet with God and he would behold the glory of God. And that glory of God would would shine so that as he came back down the mountain, even though that shine was wearing off his face, if he had lifted it up, they would have seen his glory. They had to put it on there because the Israelites weren't allowed to see it. They had to hide the glory. And he says, if that covenant was so great that your face could shine with it, how much more glorious is the gospel that we have now? Because we we don't have to wear a veil any longer. So you can think about the, the imagery. I heard one preacher describe it like this. Moses would go up on the hill and he would take his veil off and just recharge. <laughs> just all that glory of God all over him. They call it the Shekinah glory. Just the glory of God all over him. And then he'd go back down the mountain and it would fade off. It would come to an end. He said, but how does it, how does it work now? Now we are unveiled. We don't have a veil on. And we're just constantly beholding Christ. We'll get there. It's, the, it's verse 18. But this is the argument about beholding the glory of God. When we get to chapter, uh, verse 18 and we see beholding the glory of God brought up, remember this is where we're getting the idea of Moses beholding the glory of God and it causing him to shine so bright with God's glory that it had to be veiled. And now we have this ministry of righteousness in the Spirit, this ministry of the Gospel that Paul is engaged in as he shares Christ with these people. And it's a permanent glory. It doesn't fade. So here we have in verses 7-11 through 11, this many Hebrews, this many argument about the greater glory of Jesus Christ because there's nothing more glorious than Jesus Christ. I'll rejoice in no other. My soul is bound to Him alone. And what does the ministry of the Spirit look like? What does it look like when we behold Christ? Well, we all need to start somewhere, don't we? What is the work of the Spirit? I think Scott's testimony just really, it really dovetails nicely into this message as we can all remember that time, can't we? Well, a lot of you, well, a lot of y'all can't remember it, I'll just be honest. 1991. Is that what it was, Scott? Was it 1991? How many can remember 1991? 
How, okay, let's do this. This will be fun. How many weren't born yet in 1991? Oh my gosh. <laughs> that makes you feel terrible, doesn't it? I was in high school. I think I was a sophomore in high school. And I remember we were all scared. Do y'all remember being, that was kind of a scary thing because 1991, we weren't aware of that we were the great Satan. We weren't aware that there were forces that didn't care a thing about the United States of America. We were just kind of living in la-la land, weren't we? And I remember we were at church camp, and my pastor, Brother Jimmy, was, was uh, leading us all in Lord's Supper, or we were singing or something like that, and he said, hey, you, you guys, we're about to go home, and y'all been up here at camp, and nobody's had any phones, and nobody's seen a TV, and nobody's read a newspaper. Y'all are going to go home, and you're going to find out that there's a man named Saddam Hussein who is the leader of Iraq, and he's just invaded Kuwait, and we're sending people over there now because we're going to have a war. And I'm telling you, in 1991, we were not familiar with that. The last time there'd been any kind of war was either Panama or maybe a short skirmish, um, Grenada. There were just little things, maybe bombing Libya. But this seemed like a big deal. It was a, it was a massive mobilization. And we're like, we don't ever want to hear about people fighting in the Middle East. Isn't that how the world ends? So we, we were really spiritual at that moment at church camp. We were thinking, we're going to go home and this is it. I'm not going to get to do 10th grade. You know? so we, but that was a scary time. But in those moments where we have fear, where do we turn? To the places where we can find the truth and the places where we can find hope. Okay. And, in, and when we turn to, to God and we say, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? What happens when I die? Where do I go when I die? How is the world going to end? We start to ask these questions. These are good questions. And it's amazing to me how many people never even think about these questions. They just go through life. Give me something to eat. Let me watch this on TV. They never think about how it's going to end. But now, this is the time to think about those things. When you're hearing me tell you about this glorious ministry of God's Holy Spirit who can open up your eyes, who can let you see what once was hidden. Because now we know that Jesus Christ has come. And here's why Jesus came. We're about to put, we're going to take down the fall decorations soon and we're going to hang up all the garland and I've got a team that's going to help us do that. And we're going to beautify this sanctuary because we're going to celebrate Christmas. Well, what are, we, what are we celebrating there? We're celebrating the fact that there was a great problem. The law has shown us under that old covenant that we are not able to please God. And because we've sinned and we've rebelled against God, we're separated forever. And when we die and pass from this life, if we are separated from God, we'll spend eternity separated from God in a real place that the Bible calls hell. The good news of Christmas is that God has done something about it. He sent His only Son to come into this world to take on flesh, as the, the, the Message Bible says, I like the way it phrases this, to move into our neighborhood, to show us what God is like. And then when we see Jesus, we realize, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we realize we fall way short of God's standard. We thought that the, the do not do this, do not do this, do not do this was what God, God wanted. And Jesus is coming and saying, be perfect. And then I realized reading that, I am not perfect. And Jesus says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the cross. And on the cross, I'm going to hang there. And all of the wrath of God is going to be poured out on me. 
so that God's anger towards you is going to be satisfied, so that when God looks at you, he'll no longer be angry. And then here's the other thing I'm going to do. When you put your faith and your trust in me, not only is the wrath of God going to be removed from you because it was put on me, but I'm going to take my righteousness. I lived the perfect life before God. I'm getting credit for righteousness and perfection, and I'm going to take my credit, and I'm going to put it onto you. So that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, what we celebrate at Easter. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, and what we celebrate today, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he takes away your sin, and he gives you his perfect righteousness so that you can stand before God, and even though you're a sinner, even though you have sinned, when you stand before God, it's just as though you've never sinned, and it's just as though you've lived your, perf- your life perfectly before him. And so you're going to go to heaven because you're righteous. You're going to go to heaven because you're perfect. But here's the catch. It's not your righteousness, and it's not your perfection. See, that's the good news of the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about here in this new ministry of the Spirit, because God's doing the work. I tell the kids when I share the gospel with them, you're going to, are, you, are you trusting in Jesus, are you trying to go to heaven because you're good? Or are you, trying, are, you, are you going to go to heaven because Jesus was good for you? Because he was perfect for you and because he took the, the punishment, the wrath of God, and it was averted from you and put on Jesus Christ. Are you trusting that that's what's happened? If the answer is yes, you're a Christian. If you're believing and you're trusting in that, you're a Christian. When we, and when we do that, what it means to believe that is, it, is, is that Jesus is the Lord. That he's done what he said he's done. That he's ruling over all creation. And if he's the Lord, then I follow him and I do what he says. That's what repentance and faith looks like in Jesus Christ. It's very simple. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what was Scott's testimony when he was 10, when he was 10, 10 o'clock? When he, was, when he was 10 years old, what happened? Nothing. No change. But when he was truly saved, his life changed. And the Holy Spirit works changing us. Not like in the former covenant where there were no promises of that. In the old covenant, maybe every now, every now and then, the Spirit of God would descend upon somebody like David or someone like that, and they would, or a judge, and they would go do God's work. It would just be on them. Then it would go away. But the promise that we have in Scripture is that if we're in Christ and Christ is in us, the Spirit of God lives in us just in the way, the Bible speaks of it this way, in the way that the Spirit inhabited the temple in the Old Testament, now the Spirit inhabits us. And the Bible speaks of us being the temple, the believers being the temple of God. So what does this work? Look at verse 12 as we finish. Since we have such a hope, we're bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, that fading glory as he went off the mountain. It says Moses hid his face, but they say in verse 12, we're bold. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. That's why you can read those and you can just wonder, why are God's people here that love the same Old Testament that we love? Why do they not believe? Well, there's a veil there, isn't it? That's a spiritual thing. But through Christ, it's taken away. The key to understanding the Old Testament and the key to being made, as Paul told Timothy 
in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy that the Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. The key to interpreting the Old Testament is Jesus. And when you can understand the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, then you can be saved by the gospel that you see in the Old Testament. He says, but they don't see it. Yes, look at verse 15. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And Paul wasn't being judgmental there. He was a Jew himself. He said, I'd rather die and be cut off than my people go to hell. He wanted them to see it, but he says there's a veil there. But, look at verse 16, there's hope. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So that's just another way of saying the Spirit is also God. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, he says, there's freedom. There's freedom. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were veiled. We're unveiled. We have freedom. What is the freedom? To ignore what the Bible says? That freedom is not for something extra. That freedom is that now we can look at the law and we can understand its beauty. We can see Christ in it. And we all, with un- this, this is a great verse that you should underline. Verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So do you see the imagery there? Moses was going up on the mountain. He was beholding. He was shining. He took the veil off and shining. And Paul says, now we all, it's as though we're standing there with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We, that's us, we're being transformed into the same image. What's the same image? Well, I'm looking at the Lord. I'm being transformed into what image? The image of the Lord. I'm becoming like Christ. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what does the ministry of the Spirit look like? One, boldness. Two, it gives sight. It changes hearts. Number three, it brings freedom. Not to do all the silly stuff you see people that are doing on TV and and Facebook and all this kind of silly stuff. It's It's not giving you freedom to just say whatever you think you want to say about God or to make up a God in your brain, okay? The freedom is that you might have the freedom to not be bound to sin, but to be given freedom to live the way the Lord intends you to live. You don't have to, if you're a believer, you don't have to sin. Every time you do it, you're choosing to do it. Okay? We can't necessarily say that about lost people because the Bible says they're bound to sin and slavery. Sin is their master. Christ is your master. So you, when you sin, you, you decide to go back to the old way. What does that look like? What does our freedom look like? What does your freedom look like? It looks like love and obedience. And some of you say, oh, that doesn't seem like freedom to me. <laughs> Loving God and being obedient to Him. But to the believer it does. Because that's what his heart desires to do because he's got a new heart. Because the Spirit gave him a new heart. That he might love God and love others and be obedient to God's Word. <clears throat> so to go back to my first argument that I made in the very beginning of this sermon, how glorious it is to be used by the Spirit, verses 1 through 6. In the glorious ministry of the Spirit, verses 7 through 11, the more glorious ministry... And in the powerful working ministry of the Spirit, verses 12 through 18. I think that's the argument of this chapter. So application, I have some questions and we'll close. Robert Murray Machane, Scottish minister. Ministered in the 19th century. 
died at a very young age. It is said that his face carried such a holy expression that when people looked at him, they fell to their knees and accepted Christ as their Savior. Others were so attracted by his self-giving, by the beauty of his holy life, that they found his master to be irresistible. Here's what Robert Murray Machane said about this passage. He said, the Christian, this passage teaches us that the Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. A Christian is a person who makes it easy for others to believe in God. There's a story told about a pastor who came to a church in New York City. Later on, this man became the president of Moody Bible Institute, but he became, uh, in his early days, the pastor of a, a church in Atlanta, Georgia. And there was a man in the city that heard that this man had just been called to pastor a large church in Atlanta, Georgia, And so he decided he was going to check this guy out. So he hired a private detective. And he said, follow this man around to see if he practices what he preaches. After a few weeks later, the detective came to report on the pastor's conduct. And he was able to report that this man, Dr. Houghton, that his life matched his preaching. And as a result of his faithful life, which was God's workmanship in him, The man that followed him around for a couple of weeks became a believer. Are you the kind of person, are we the kind of church that makes it easy for others to believe in God? To put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul is defending his ministry in this passage. If we were called to defend our ministry, are we living for Christ? Are we infatuated with Jesus? Are we beholding His glory every day? Can we point to transformation in our lives that's taking place, not because we're trying really hard to change ourselves through being religious, but can we point to transformation that's taking place because we can't take our eyes off of Jesus? And is that transformation that's taking place in your life, is it leading to ministry outside the walls of this church as well as inside the walls? Tonight is one of those nights we have an opportunity here. You have an opportunity to show the handwriting of God on this church and on your life and on your heart. People, think of it, people from all over our community will come to our parking lot tonight. They'll come onto our territory tonight. They'll come to play games. They'll come to let their children dress up. And we have an opportunity when we see that little girl in the princess dress to make a big deal out of it to introduce yourself to people that you don't know, to go out of your way to be friendly and loving, to build relationships and to show people what Jesus looks like, to be out there in the parking lot and to let the the, the glory of the Lord just shine off your face. You're not just there because Kathy twisted your arm. (laughs) And she's good at doing that. But the reason we're doing this is ultimately to make disciples. And to make disciples, you got to meet people. And one way, you, if you just stand there and let them you know, throw the fishing line over there and you put the piece of candy on the clothespin clothes and throw it back over, <laughs> well, are we really meeting people that way? Oh, but you have a chance. What's your name? How you doing? I'm Chad Edgington. Good to meet you. Now, what's, tell me your kid's name. What grade are you guys in? I love your costume. It's called being friendly and hospitable. It's called sharing the love of Christ with people in the most simple of ways. 
by handing them beans and cornbread. <laughs> but I think it's awesome you can come on the parking lot and get a meal, right? Like we say, loaves and fishes all the time. It's how God provides. And we'll show that God has written on our hearts. That we're living letters being written by the Holy Spirit. And he's not done with us yet. Our lives should say to people that are reading us, that woman loves God. That man is committed to Jesus above all else. And the takeaway is you don't go out there and just try to be the person that looks like they love God. The way that this happens is that you get up every morning and you don't look around. You just look to Jesus. You behold his glory. The way you're going to reflect Jesus and have a powerful ministry is realizing I'm insufficient. I've got to spend my time loving him. I've got to give him every moment. I've got to let the Spirit lead. I've got to yield to the Holy Spirit in my life. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit and to walk in the Lord, to take up your cross, to follow him daily. It's just to keep your eyes on him. When you've got your cross and you're following Jesus, you don't know where he's going unless you've got your eyes on him. And when people see you loving God, when people see you loving people, when people see you selling out for Jesus, the Spirit moves. And that means a lot. And that is powerful. But what does it require? Just like our Sunday school lesson said today, you've got to break up the fallow ground. You've got to break up the hard ground. That means you've got to change. You might have to change your approach to your faith. Let me ask you this question. I know I'm taking a little time, and, but y'all have got time. Are you gazing at Jesus or are you just glancing at him every now and then? Where's the power? Where does the change come? Where's the transformation? Think of Moses up on that mountain just beholding God's glory. And think about how our lives could be if we just trusted the Lord every moment, every day. Of course, I know I don't do that. But I'd like to lead us in doing it in that type of change. I don't just want to glance at Jesus. I want him to be so irresistible to me that I can't take my eyes off of him. I want to behold him. I want to depend on him. And I want to love him with all my heart. Let's pray.